Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. afternoon you're listening to little atoms on resonance 104.4 fm little atoms is a show about humanism rationalism science and the left i'm neil denny and this show features an interview recorded by myself and padre greedy with the writer christopher hitchens christopher hitchens is a british-born writer based in washington dc a journalist essayist and literary critic He writes for Vanity Fair and Slate, and famously is an ex-writer for The Nation, which he left under acrimonious circumstances. Christopher's books include Blood, Class and Nostalgia, Letters to a Young Contrarian, Why All Well Matters, Thomas Jefferson, Author of America, and The Trial of Henry Kissinger, The Missionary Position, an expose of Mother Teresa, and No One Left to Lie To, an expose of Bill Clinton. Christopher's latest book, published this week by Atlantic, is called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Christopher describes himself as an anti-theist rather than an atheist, and was an outspoken supporter of the removal of Saddam Hussein, a position which has subsequently alienated him from a lot of former comrades on the left. Padraig and I recently spent a convivial afternoon in Christopher's company at the Oxford Literary Festival, where this interview was recorded. I hope you enjoy it. Well, Christopher, thanks very much for agreeing to talk to Little Atoms today. It's a pleasure. Well, the first thing I want to ask you about is, what do you feel about being um, bracketed as a Enlightenment fundamentalist? Well, it it could be a term of honour. 
and uh, even though it isn't meant as one. Indeed. For example, in the, in the United States where I live, where I'm a supporter of the American Civil Liberties Union, which exists primarily to defend the First Amendment to the Constitution, there is an expression that we use for ourselves, which is the First Amendment absolutist. Mm-hmm. In other words, we, mean, we think it means exactly what it says and nothing else. And we don't want anyone messing with, or as they say in America, fucking with, the ipsissima verba. Mm-hmm. We think the words themselves are, if you like, sacred. So I know what it's like in that way to think of words that are written by humans as if they should be taken strictly and literally as intended. And if that's what was meant by Enlightenment fundamentalism, <clears throat> I'd be perfectly happy with it. But as it happens also, I'm sensitive enough to language to know when something surreptitious is being imported into an argument where it doesn't belong. And this coinage is designed to subvert and pervert uh, the argument by implying a moral equivalence, or any equivalence, between those who do not believe there can be a strict scriptural foundation for morality or politics or anything else, um, and the contrary view, so that it's, it's designed as a propaganda term. And the implication would therefore be that one could be an Enlightenment fanatic or an Enlightenment jihadist. Or that would be next. I mean, and, and I can see the way it's going, and I don't like it. So I've done my best. Actually, I haven't yet done my best. But I've done. I've written a little to try and head off this, this, as I say, surreptitious importation. Do you think more broadly? I mean, on, on that point, we're we're facing or are involved in, as we speak, in a world where you're not allowed to say that one idea is better than another idea. Well, I think everyone who is a sceptic has to have a position of one kind or another on the question of relativism, which is a very tempting position for a sceptic to take, is to say, how could one ever know that any one position was superior to another? Shouldn't one be open-minded about all? Um, These things are very tempting. Um, I would reply to it, and I'm in a long line of people who have argued better than myself about this ever since... um, Socrates, that uh, an open mind is not an empty mind. That we probably do a priori proceed as if somebody who argues for, shall we say, censorship or torture, has learned less and has more to more to be taught than someone who doesn't. Yeah. How could one prove that? Well, it would take a long time, more time than we've got. But to be neutral, in other words, to be affectless, is not quite the same as being open-minded. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I think, not quite the same as being relativistic. Yes, it is possible. For example, I think that appearances to the contrary, it's just as stupid to be a Quaker as it is to be a supporter of Sati, because in both cases you depend on a supernatural or spiritual or non-rational authority for your opinion. If you'll do it for one thing, I, as far as I can see, there's nothing to stop you doing it for another. Yeah. But of course, I do not believe somebody going to the Friends Meeting House is the same as someone forcing a Hindu widow to jump onto a pile of burning coals. I'm not relativistic about it in that sense, but I'd be capable of not just for the sake of argument saying that they have one very important thing in common that they don't have in common with me. I think something that a lot of people face and certainly probably face yourself is that, um, of the secular and political world, is that people will say, well, they say Marxism or Trotskyism is just as religious as a belief in the supernatural because again you're dealing in things that can't be proved really, you can't prove that Marxism works or you can't prove that Trotsky was right, I mean, how does that how do you Well people even that? say that uh, you know, faith in you know, evolution is, is, 
is as much of a religion as, as which is quite clearly different. Yeah, well that, yeah, that, that's absurd that the, the, uh, because evolution is derived entirely from wrestling with evidence. And there isn't a single Darwinian who wouldn't change in their mind and hasn't said immediately that they would if it could be shown that there was, that there could never be discovered a fossil that showed transitional forms, for example. Or um, It's not like, it isn't at all like the belief that the fossils are put in the rock to test our faith, which is, mm. which is as unfalsifiable, if you wish. Um, I but just want to add something to what I said before, which is that um, I, I would myself prefer to argue with a Catholic who said that they believed in the virgin birth and in transubstantiation and consubstantiation, there were the Catholic who says, well, I don't really have to believe in all that. Because <laughs> I do quite like to know who I'm arguing with. And in a sense, I prefer those who are um, fundamental or fundamentalist, who assert what I believe they assert when they say they are believers, than those who take it a la carte. Yeah. So again, there's no necessary disgrace in saying of somebody, they believe what they say. Either these holy books are the word of God, or they are not. If they are, a Christian who says, well, they're open to interpretation, is in a very iffy position indeed. How is he going to interpret the word of God? What gives him that right or her? Mm. It's a hugely arrogant claim to make. You know. So there's credit in the term fundamentalist, if you like. Um, I was a Marxist for most of my life, and I still think like one. I'm just not a socialist anymore. When I was one, I suppose I thought that in a way there was a unified field theory of a sort. The materialist conception of history left not much unexplained and certainly uh, encountered no evidence that contradicted itself. Actually, I still believe that. Mm -hmm. I find it to be a defensible position. Uh, it, it surprises new evidence can come to light that is not in contradiction with saying. But it is... Uh, not to be held as a religion. Indeed, it's, it's, it, is, it is originated as a philosophy that says that if there was any truth in religion, there would be no need for socialism in the first place. If there was a, if there was a just God or a benign God, there'd be no need for politics, actually. You'd, you'd have everything you needed. Thomas Jefferson actually said, um, I tremble for my country when I think that God is just. I, I've written about this. If there's a just God, what's the tremble about? Mm -hmm. He's talking about slavery. But he was, he make, rhetorically, it's a brilliant thing to say. It suggests that a punishment will fall on those who practice this filthy business. But that's nothing compared to this is a just God. Well, you mentioned it's a bliss that would come from that. But, well, Marxism proceeds from that's no, there's no salvation to be expected mm -hmm. in that direction. Humans being what they are, there's no question in my mind that, that Marxism became at least quasi-religious, complete with all the trimmings, excommunication, rival papacies, heresy hunts. Uh, appeals to the one true word, to the canonical text. So there's absolutely no doubt about that. But it would still be possible, was possible, for those of us who call ourselves Trotskyists, say, or supporters of the left opposition more, more properly, to point out that this was in contradiction with the original foundational claims of Marxism. That this, this was a parody of itself. It could be criticised in its own terms. In other words, how a Christian can say of somebody another Christian, well, you, mm -hmm. I don't agree with you because you're a fundamentalist, in other words, you really think this book is true. Uh, does, that seems to be incoherent. Either you're a Christian or you are not. Mm -hmm. And if you are, you have to believe in some sense that there's been a divine revelation that certain words are sacred and unchangeable. You've just, you just you raised when you were talking about um, you know, Thomas Jefferson's interpretation of the, the idea of, a, of a, um, a just God, this idea that there's inherent slavery involved. If there is a, if there is a supreme being, you described it as... Um, 
permanent supervision and surveillance. Yeah. Celestial North Korea. Mm -hmm. yeah. No, it, I'm very glad there's no evidence for it because it would be, to me, intolerable if it were true. It would be indecent mm -hmm. to have a, some force that permanently supervised one's every waking and sleeping thought and action from the moment, at least the moment of birth, uh, until well after death. In fact, the, the well, forever. Forever. Uh, in other words, you couldn't escape it as you can from North Korea by, by dying. Um, it would be the most horrible and complete tyranny imaginable. And it is the template for totalitarianism. It's therefore a relief to me to have been able to conclude that there's not a shred of evidence to suggest that there's a, a particle of truth to it. I say that because there, I do know people, and you probably know them too, the atheist and agnostic, who sometimes say many of them ex-religious people, that they're either nostalgic for their belief, they wish it was true, they just can't sustain it, mm -hmm. or who are sad that they can't bring themselves to believe that how nice it would be if this were the case. Alas, it isn't. I, I simply cannot imagine why anyone would want it to be true. That's just my opinion. But then it clearly is uh, attractive to a, a vast amount of people to be enthralled to some sort of supernatural totalitarian being. In in the same way that it's, it's it's obviously been attractive to people to be to be you know to be enthralled to Stalin or most people most of the time have no great desire to be free unless the burdens of unfreedom become absolutely insufferable that's actually part of the preamble to Jefferson's Declaration of Independence most people most of the time would rather have the trouble of putting up with the oppression than the trouble of throwing it off it has to be quite intense before uh -huh. they would think I'd rather the struggle to remove this than the struggle of enduring it. That's true of most people most of the time. Alas, we're, we're not a species programmed utterly for, for liberty. We have it in us innately, but we have other instincts too, such as for a quiet life, and for some people, security, preferable to liberty. Masochism is not just a perversion in other words. Some people need to be told, have a need to be told what to do, to have an authority in which they can repose their, their entire trust. And they will tend to invest this authority, since they're relying upon it so much, with great qualities. Otherwise, they, they won't want to be saying, I'm, I'm subject to something arbitrary or, or temporary or trivial. These are all natural things, but they are very untrustworthy. They break down repeatedly. And they force us to take responsibility. If most people have no great yearning for freedom, does that make liberation struggles defunct? It doesn't make them defunct, but it, means it explains why they're so rare and so unsatisfactory. But I think the instinct to, to, to be free is as strong as the instinct for security or for yeah. order or the other euphemisms that we give to yeah. the status quo. Yes, we have just as strong a feeling. It's, it's, or at least it's just as much innate in us. I mean, it is the spur to innovation and to discovery and to exploration and so forth. But it, it's, it's not found in all people at all times. If it were, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Well, I was, gonna, I was just going to say that, you, again, you mentioned earlier that um, you would still see Marxism as a, as, a, as a sort of legitimate framework. And we know there's no point as going over the, the sort of reasons why you've distanced, distanced yourself from other people ostensibly of the left. But um, I'd be interested to hear why, you, why you, you say you don't no longer describe yourself as a socialist. Well, the, the Marxist analysis of, of history, or the, if you like, the materialist conception of history and society, is, if it has any claim at all to um, grandeur, uh, objective. It's not weighted by any 
sectarian or class or any other sort of interest. It's, it's scrupulously detached. In other words, the socialist element of it is prescriptive to begin with. I remember, I think it was Peregrine Worsthorn, certainly one of the British or Tory polemicists, mm-hmm. writing once that he himself was a Marxist because he quite understood about the class struggle. He just wanted the other side to win it. Uh, that's just the, the easiest way of putting it. And, and there's, there is no way that any Marxist could say he'd drawn the wrong conclusion from the study of the, of the first three books of Capital or the 18th Premier. There's n- nothing preventing you from the, That's all I mean. Socialist uh, principles are essentially ethical. Their, their claim is, or was, that they would be more efficient, that in some sense they're inevitable, they are the product of pre-existing relations of production and so forth, and are bodied forth by them almost, but not quite necessarily, because there is still the moral element that says it would be more just. Now, these claims in practice have been found to be very unsatisfactory. Mm -hmm. You'd have to be an idealist in the philosophical sense to go on believing them. You couldn't say that the study of the evolution of human society, of capitalist society, in any sense necessitated a socialist conclusion. I don't believe that can be said anymore. It fell away from me in that way. The consequences of concluding that are enormous, because once you've decided, well, there isn't, going to, there isn't a socialist alternative, uh, not even an alternative critique, let alone movement, or potentially different society, then, then uh, it's, the, it's the proof, as, as uh, has been found before, that you can't just be a little bit heretical. So having decided that um, socialism is not the answer, I mean, there's some, a trend identified in your books on, on Paine and Jefferson and more broadly seems to be happening among a lot, a lot of the um, liberal left to go back even further, back to the Enlightenment. Do you think this is an important kind of statement of first principles that's needed? Mm. Yes, because the, because I would still like to think of myself as in some way not a counter-revolutionary. Never mind whether that's necessary for me or not. I mean, I think, I think you know what I mean. So when I say that the, the 1776 revolution is a revolution whose principles are still alive and can be emulated usefully and practically, without damage. I make quite a large claim, but I think it's true, and it would be, I, I don't want to denigrate the revolution of 1789, but I don't think it was an advance on, or indeed the Cromwellian revolution, but the succeeding, the, the, the utopian one, the ones that believed that it was possible to make humanity into essentially a new shape, the human personality into a new form, have been a little bit more than disproved, and I think a little bit more than discredited. And in, in the final analysis, has there been any thing that has been really gained from the um, socialist revolutions of the 20th century? Oh, yes, I think so. I mean, I'm, I, I do. Uh, the idea of globalization, for example. The realization that we are, in fact, and have for quite a long time been part of the global economy, and that what happens to someone in Namibia or Latvia is happening in my own country, because these people are in my own, they are in my society, as I am in theirs. So it's of great importance. Um, the realization of the limits of the nation state, the realization that imperialism is short lived, that monarchy and religion are very temporary and ramshackle improvisations. Yeah, all of these things are very well worth having. Yeah. The abolition of the idea of racial or ethnic difference. Well, I think all of these things can be said to be part of the, um, to the credit of the socialist movement. You've got a new book coming out. God is Not Great, it's called. The case against religion, it's subtitled. So, tell us why. Tell us about the genesis of the book. One word to choose, perhaps. The well, book the book is being written about by others, and uh, in a way that I, at first, I made me a little 
what's the word, apprehensive. And then, then I realised made me glad. It's being written about as part of a, a general <coughs> counterstroke to yeah. religiosity associated with the names of uh, Richard Dawkins, sure. uh, Sam Harris, mm. uh, Daniel Dennett. Um, all of these, by the way, names with whom anyone should be proud to be associated, no matter what their view might be. Now, of course, I would rather have been the first one. But since I'm not going to be, I've decided that I think a rising tide lifts all boats. And actually believe that that may be the case. That, that you can now find, even in the supposedly irredeemably religion-soaked United States, presentation arguments in mainstream magazines as if, okay, the fight is now on about whether religion is ethical, whether it's useful, <coughs> whether it's true. But this is, this is an impressive moment to be taking part in. I'm very proud to play a small part in, so to speak, keeping that thought alive. But what, what seems interesting Feeding about... Feeding fuel into that flame. What's interesting about that, though, is, is it's almost not like this is the moment for that, because Dawkins' book particularly, and Sam Harris's book be, before that as well, have been very much attacked. I mean, this is almost like an echo we've been talking about, you know, the, the, the sort of the liberal intelligentsia and their sort of failure to 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 get to grips with other things that we're concerned with. It's, it seems to be that people are almost saying, oh, you can't do this, it's, it's embarrassing, it's, you can't attack religion in this way. And Dawkins' book was um, savage in a, in a lot of quarters that you, we, you would have expected to have been on side. Yes, well, I think a lot of people want to show that they understand the religious pulse. And you'll be the judge of this, not I, but in my book, you may conclude that I, I'm... I'm writing as if I understand why people are religious and not completely without sympathy for it, as Marx did. In fact, I, I, I don't begin, but I quite early on introduce something that I've done once or twice before, but at length to say that one of the great misrepresentations of, of all quotation is the uh, belief that Marx referred to religion as the opium of the people or dismissed it as such. I, mean, I quote, I can, I can do it for you now almost word for word, what he in fact said from his um, uh, introduction to the critique of Hegel's uh, philosophy of right, where he says religion is the, um, the heart of the heartless world and the sigh of the oppressed creature and the spirit of the spiritless situation and the opiate of the people, adding that the demand to give up illusions is the demand to give up or to overcome the condition that requires illusions and concluding that criticism has plucked the flowers from the chain not so that men may wear the chain without consolation but so that they may break the chain and cull the living flower but that's as different from what people think yeah, as it could be it also by the way shows what a serious thinker he was I'm not always completely true to this in my book because occasionally I refer with complete contempt to certain religious affectations and impostures but I think that compared to Richard certainly Mm -hmm. Dawkins I have a, perhaps a, a little more empathy with what is evidently a, a problem that humanity can't solve. Well, that's in other words, I believe religion is ineradicable. It's, it's, it's a miscategorization of Richard Dawkins' book as well. I think that that's certainly been the, the message that's, that's been out in the, in the sort of reviews that he's basically attacking anybody who has a religious belief as being stupid, basically. Yes, um, which I'm, I'm sometimes tempted to do myself, and I think he also over relies probably on Darwin. But I don't think you, there's not a scientific refutation of a religion or God, though I do think that religious belief is ultimately incompatible.
Stephen Gould. I, I checked Dawkins aside over Stephen Gould. I think they're not non-overlapping magisteria. Sure. I think they are hostile. Mm -hmm. They're incompatible. In other words, a person who is a theoretical physicist may be a believer in God, but he, he cannot possibly square it with his study of theoretical physics. It's a purely optional and private question. And it may flat out contradict his other findings. That wouldn't be at all uncommon. Uh, uh, for example, the man I mentioned today, Joseph Priestley, discoverer of oxygen, believed in the phlogiston theory. Mm -hmm. Isaac Newton was a spiritualist in Rosicrucian, Rose, <laughs> Rose I think. Extraordinary thing. I mean, you'll find it uh, I, until Einstein, Darwin set out to prove to vindicate creationism by his studies of plant life. Um, until Einstein, I don't think you get the pure mind that says we can we actually have now an understanding of the cosmos and it has no room for a personal god well that's but, I mean, but he said it does have room for spinners as god if you insist you can be a pantheist because pantheism cannot be refuted but until that's the first time the real first there's a real scientist mm -hmm. in the world this einstein and the second someone who says we now know enough to be able to see further than any religious person has ever seen but well, people often and use that you know um, Isaac Newton was a you know a religious believer, an alchemist, or whatever. In, in in a way, which is you know all once upon a time all astronomers were also astrologers. You know these things just yes. happened to be part of the same magisterium. And then you know then they, there was a. I'm not sure they were all astrologers, but I mean were, it was very hard. Well, to it was the same science. There were early there were very early refutations mm -hmm. of astrology long before we knew how many planets there were. For example, there, were, there was the, the other Pythagoras refuted astrology by actually by reference to, I think, to identical twins. I mean, there were lots of refutations there. But the compatibility of the scientific work with irrational belief is, is shouldn't surprise anybody. I mean, we are look. This is all done by mammals. Right? Mm -hmm. Everything that is done and written is done by people who are one half chromosome away from being a chimpanzee. Right? It's not going to be. Any better than that? <laughs> a lot of the criticism—that's why you can tell religion is man-made. <laughs> a lot of the criticism of um, books by, say, um, Dawkins and Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett goes along the lines that the authors don't understand what it is to be religious, to have religious belief. Yes. Um, what was your own experience of religion? Well, I was lucky in one sense in that um, my father was a, from a very strict Baptist family and was somewhat in flight from at least its rigidity. My grandfather was a very, very strict Calvinist. And my mother was a daughter of Judaism but did not win want to be identified as Jewish, wanted mm -hmm. to assimilate. Not to Christianity, but simply to English society. So that I, by pure luck, came from two branches that were, so to speak, uh, I don't know what the word for it would be, uh, they deteriorate non-dogmatic and not at all interested in converting me. Uh, I was sent to a Methodist school because they believed that, uh, though I was baptized in the Church of England because that was a social mobility question, they, they both had to move up a class and that was one way of getting into the middle class. Sent to a Methodist school because they believed that the education there was better, which it was. Um, never had to endure anything like confirmation or little alone of bar mitzvah. And wasn't at any of my schools inculcated more than everyone has to be. And enjoyed divinity classes and um, and scripture knowledge classes, um, and learned quite a lot from it. Um, and don't envy those who have no religious impulse at all. Mm. I mean, Pascal writes to the one who is so made that he cannot believe, which proves that 
it's always been known there are such people. Ian McEwen told me recently, I haven't checked this out yet, but it seems as we do more work on cognition, it's, it emerges that there are, there's always been a minority of about 10 to 15 percent of human beings who just can't believe in God at all. They just don't have it, they don't have religion. Yeah. They all, for most of history, had to be very quiet about it and do the outward forms. I think I may be one of them because though I like, you know, if, if there's time when we're done, I'll probably go to Evensong because I haven't been since I was last in Oxford just to see what it's like. And I enjoy doing that kind of thing. But I don't enjoy what the Church of England has done to, to the liturgy or to the prayer book. This is I like my Cranmer and my King James <laughs> pure, thanks. Um, but I've never believed that, that any of it's true. As a literary critic, you... Say, and I've, I've heard, I mean, I remember being very struck by St. Paul's epistle to the, I think it's, it's the Philippians, isn't it, where he says, um, which I read um, at my father's funeral when I had to give the address at the, in the chapel of, overlooking Portsmouth Harbour, the D-Day chapel where Eisenhower gave the prayers before, before D-Day. And I, I did it because it has no religion in it. It says, St. Paul says, uh, brethren, therefore, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are beautiful, or lovely, and of good report, think on these things. Great. Wouldn't be without it. There's no religious impulse in that. And if you compare it to the verses on either side, it's like listening to a sonnet as opposed to the ravings of a clown. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are moments of that kind, numinous moments, if you wish, um, associated also with music, architecture. Not in my mind with painting. I find devotional painting completely revolting. All of it. Rubens, the lot. Uh, utterly, utterly null. Aesthetically repulsive. But not gothic, not gothic architecture and not Baroque music. I don't know why. I just That's by the way I am. Devotional painting nauseates me. So tell it us may some be something to do with Protestantism. I don't know. Yeah, I don't like your name. I don't like iconography. Yeah, I don't yeah, like yeah, incense. Yeah. Sure. Perhaps it's a slightly Protestant instinct, but um, that can't completely be true because the devotional music has a big influence on me, and as does even the more ornate kind of Gothic architecture. So tell us a little bit more about the book. What, what can we? We haven't read it. We're, we're, we can well, read this before it's published. It's partly to say that the metaphysical claims of religion are not true, and therefore. The cult, any, any cult of untruth or unreason is, um, even if it produces nice architecture, is probably to be very much distrusted. Then say the practical results of it are very uh, increasingly menacing, and that the uh, possible intersection of apocalyptic ideas or messianic ideas with apocalyptic weaponry, which is a, a one possible future, one possible terminus is increasingly something to be very much worried about. And that religion is an insufficient safeguard against this because with a part of itself, it must hope that this world comes to an end. It must seek that, wish it. It does, in fact, do so. And this is unhealthy, unwholesome. This is, this we'd is be like better off if we grew out of it. This is an accusation that's often brought against, um, well, um, President Hunt and and probably more so in the Western world, um, George Bush. Do you think there's any real truth in the claims of either or, in the claims brought against either or, either or both, that they really are willing the apocalypse? It was, it, it used to strike me as possibly very riskily true of Ronald Reagan, mm. in that we knew that he was 
very fond of discussions of eschatology and very fond of deriving, as a lot of people of low mentality are, from recent headlines, the possible fulfillment of scriptural prophecy, especially concerning the end of days. It used to worry me very much because he did have potentially control over a nuclear arsenal. But it turns out, we didn't know this then, but we do know it now from his published correspondence and that he, he, he had always thought that nuclear weaponry was absolutely evil. And he did seize the first chance he took, or, sorry, did seize the first chance that was afforded him to make a, an agreement with um, President Gorbachev as far as possible to defuse these neutral arsenals. So that it was exaggerated in Reagan's case, but I didn't, I, at the time, thought not by much. It was, one was right to be afraid of anyone yeah. within range of a nuclear weapon who talks in this manner. With President Ahmadinejad, I can preach it round, as they say, or preach it flat. As the, as, the, as the preacher says in Arkansas when he's asked to read about it. You know this joke? No. The, the congregation is needing to hire a new preacher in Arkansas and they, they interview people who want, who want the job and they say, well, before, you, before we hire you, we want you to know that maybe half the people in this congregation do not believe the world is round. Though probably quite a lot of them do believe that it is. But many of them believe it's flat. So what, what's your opinion on and he said, I can preach it round, I can preach it flat. <laughs> Religion is man-made. Mm. Well, I can preach it round or flat with Ahmadinejad. I mean, he, this is a guy who does apparently believe that the, the Shia Muslim version of the Messiah, the Mahdi, the 12th Imam, yeah. is not just coming back, they all have to believe that, but is to be expected imminently. And a, a, a highway is being built, apparently, in Tehran, along which he can be greeted and the president of Iran went to the place where it's believed by Iranian Shia that the occluded 12th Imam, he's now in occultation. He's done a well, isn't he? He's done a well near Qum. The Iraqi Shia believe that he was under <coughs> the golden dome of Samara that was recently blown up by Al-Qaeda. So there's a discrepancy there. As you'd expect, there's, a, there's no agreement among the faithful because it's man-made. But now, if he believes this, if he believes in the imminent return, and the, therefore an apocalypse and the, and the um, coming of universal peace and justice, then it must be in some way uh, contradictory or super erogatory for him to want a nuclear weapon. What, who needs this if the, the imam has come? Unless by any chance he thinks that a nuclear exchange, as people wonderfully call it, exchange, can you imagine a stupid <laughs> word for like saturating civilian populations with <laughs> With thermonuclear material exchange, thanks a lot. Um, unless by any chance he thinks that that might help bring it on. Now, it, well, I wouldn't want to take the risk he doesn't think it. Though I can't believe he does. Um, and I can't believe he wants to have a nuclear war with Israel because he must know what the outcome mm -hmm. would be, yeah. let alone with the United States. But is it wise to assume rationality, as it was with the communists? They knew better than to do that. They knew they would all lose. After all, Mr. Rafsanjani, much more cynical and less fundamentalist, I've been in Iran, I've seen some of these people in action. Um, he's Rafsanjani is considered the pragmatist, not the flaming Mahdi fan, has said publicly, well, in a nuclear exchange, Israel would be destroyed ultimately and forever, whereas the Islamic world would only be badly injured. We would, we would outlive it. Now that's said by the pragmatist. In other words, if you are 
an elected leader of a Western country, I think you've got you have no right not to take this seriously. You have to assume that that's a possible threat. You cannot dismiss it, even though that's what Mao Zedong used to say. As I keep reminding people, he used to say that too. He used to terrify the Russians by saying, "China would survive a nuclear war; you wouldn't. We have more people." They did say this, whether they believed it or not. Of course, the Chinese have never gone anywhere near a nuclear confrontation. Even in their most ultra-cultural revolution phase, they never went near one, as the Russians did with Cuba. But of course, he's, he's you know, allegedly... My conclusion is that nuclear weapons are irrational by definition in themselves. Because what, you know, they, they are useless for anything but genocide and apocalypse, mm-hmm. which we don't intend to do. If it's wrong to do it, it's wrong to prepare for it. Etc. But, but so there may be something about them that drives people nuts. But the, still, the idea of a nut having a nuke yeah. is a little extra alarming in point of surplus value. And he, he has allegedly threatened to to, um, to want to see Israel wiped off the face of it. Well, there's no no allegation about that. That's that's. Oh well, that's the, the, well the, 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 the other translation is that he'd like to see it wiped on the face of history, which I actually can't really see the difference. They both seem equally <laughs> well, they bad are, to me. We, they are both in, in whatever translation or rendition. They are the they are just his um, idiot repetition of a mantra from the Ayatollah Khomeini, mm-hmm. whose words cannot be altered, who said that uh, nothing less than the complete extirpation of the Zionist state could be the objective. Um, that's just simply true, that he did say that on several occasions, and that it's, I've heard it regularly repeated in Iranian public meetings and in Hezbollah events in other countries. Well, you, you mentioned a, a number of times, and it, you know, it's, it's quite obvious to us that... that um, I'll just say that the way you've written it, man created God, God God didn't create man, and it, and it seems quite obvious to us. But um, <clears throat> you've also got, I'd, I'd like you to, to talk a little bit about this, um, the sort of rejoinder you have to the people that think that God talks directly to them, which is a, which is a lot of religious believers, isn't it? Yes, I mean, if somebody says to me, uh, not that Jesus is my best friend, but say, well, I'll give you an example, um, I have a book on my shelf from Bishop uh, Hugh Montefiore, who um, was, he died recently, the Bishop of Birmingham, mm. which by the way is the first line of a limerick. <laughs> and um, before that, when I first met him, uh, was the rector or vicar of Great St. Mary's Church in Cambridge, a very, very distinguished churchman. Mm-hmm. Good. He, he wrote a vindication of belief as a Christian. He's a convert from Judaism. He says that when he was one of the two or three Jewish boys at his public school, I forget which school it was, that uh, Jesus of Nazareth entered his study one day and persuaded him to stop being a Jew and accept the path. And it can certainly be said a few, well, I'm taking the case of the strongest. It can certainly be said a few Montefiore that the rest of his life he acted as if that had happened to him. And I think it did happen to him. I just don't think it happened. <laughs> So he hallucinated something or something along those lines. I wouldn't necessarily call it hallucination. I mean, for him it was completely real. Yeah. Just, no, he can't make it real for me. He can never persuade me it happened. Mm-hmm. But he can persuade me that it happened to him. Yeah. If you follow me. I don't doubt all those who've seen UFOs or ghosts either. I don't think that... Uh, those, some of them are undoubtedly fraudulent or deranged, as we would customarily say deranged. As we tend to look askance at those who say, I've been hearing a lot of voices lately. The prophecy... 
a biblical study, so a scriptural study, it's impossible if you don't credit people who say that things were revealed to them in dreams or by what appears to be epileptic episodes. Mm-hmm. There's a very strong case for saying that, that St. Paul had an epileptic fit. Many good uh, students of the subject looking at the descriptions we have of what happened to Muhammad when he had his revelations say this is a description of an epileptic. Other prophets too. Sure, but it doesn't mean it's any... Who, who's to say those are not really events in the material world? Marx said if an idea takes hold of masses, it becomes a material force. Mm-hmm. If, if something is widely <laughs> enough believed, it is. It is. It is, It is yeah, the case, yeah, as it yeah, were. So uh, uh, that's what I think. I therefore think it would be... I don't say that Richard Dawkins does say this, but for people like him to say that all of this is simply uh, deluded piffle is not untrue, but is a, a little bit reductionist. But you've also called the idea that a person could know the will of God to have God. You've also called that. But that's, no, that's, impo- that's impossible by definition. I mean, that's quite different from saying I, Jesus of Nazareth came to me. He doesn't say if Jesus of Nazareth said he also told me where the treasure was buried and there it yeah. was. And it would, no, he doesn't say that. And to say no, I know what God intends is a much larger step. Uh, say I know what God wants us to eat. I know what position He wants us to have sex. And so, no, that, no human being could possibly know that. So you start the argument, it seems to me, by eliminating those who claim to know what they have to conceive cannot be known by definition because if it can be known by them where's the authority of God morally or, or naturally there's no if it can be done by humans then they're only carrying out his orders then it's banal that's self-refusing that's easy but that gives me no problem at all deciding whether or not there are people genuinely of, of faith willing to sacrifice their lives for what they think of as a glimpse of the divine I'm not so sure that I could say that they're that they're making it up. Mm-hmm. Though I, you know, I, I'm absolutely sure that they could. I would couldn't have such an experience, and that they're having one, even if they're sitting right next to me, is as meaningless to me as if they're having a stroke. And they cannot possibly hope to tell me that it's meaningful to me what's happening now. And they mustn't try. Under no circumstances are they to be given the education of my children or to conduct their ceremonies on my tax money. But that they, that Human Fury met Jesus in his study at Winchester is, as far as I know, as true as anything I've ever seen. <laughs> By the way, it had one, one particularly strong effect. It left the only other Jewish boy in the school as the only Jewish boy. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently never forgave him. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Until until Jesus came to your study, mate. At least there were two of them. (laughs) Now I'm the only year (laughs) that's all fucking. (laughs) And it's all shocked. Um, But he was a nice man. And his book, though, it's ludicrous, Mm. I find, is is not vile or fraudulent or demagoguing. He just says... It must be true because conditions for life on Earth are ideal. It's created so as to support life. And I said, "Well, what about Mars, mate? It's not very far away. Every other rock in the system is either too fucking hot or too fucking cold, as is the case with large bits of the Earth itself. You know, we're on a climatic knife edge, as we now all know. Some design, eh? Yeah. So, unless, unless really we're talking about some, um, you know." the Hanoverian aristocrats building follies, then there is no case for it. <laughs> Not really, no. And uh, no, good, it's a good analogy. But also, it's, it also shows the 
the, the one thing I don't think religion can ever be acquitted of, which is solipsism. Mm. It may claim to be modest and humble, but it's actually an extremely arrogant claim. Not as to know what you think God intends, but to assume that he's the object of your attention at all. Mm. Excuse me, I'm just being very humble today. I'm just on an errand for God. Wait, hold it right there. Hold it right. What did you just say? How modest is that? As they shove you off the pavement. Yeah. I'm in a hurry. I'm doing God's will. Excuse me. No, that's not humble. It's unbelievably vain. Well, solipsism seems to be quite central to the human condition, though, doesn't it? Because it's it, that's exactly, you know, all of these sort of beliefs that have replaced religion. <coughs> I was going to ask you about, you know, that if 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 in some in some possible way religion could be sort of eradicated, which is well, I don't honestly believe it's ever going to happen. No, it's impossible. I think by definition. The um, until we give up wish thinking mm-hmm. and fear of death. It is not, uh, Freud is quite right. It can't be uh, transcended. But, but it can be domesticated. It can be, it can be tamed a little, privatized mm-hmm. a bit. But you no, know, you can't persuade me when I read my horoscope in the Daily Mail and I know what Adorno said about mm-hmm. horoscopes. I know what Pythagoras said. And I have refutations of my own. I know what complete piffle it is. One day it said, a member of the opposite sex is very interested and will show it today. Changed my whole fucking day. (laughs) Did I know I was being a fool? Of course I did. If we're sitting here and a fridge, a rusting fridge comes plunging from the sky through the sea and hits you, and I'm sitting here, am I supposed to think that's random? Not at all. (laughs) Not at all. So religion takes advantage of our bad wiring and our Mammalian selfishness and our solipsisms, of course, it's, that has a huge natural advantage that can't be taken away from it. But I wonder if some of the sort of systems that are, that are replacing... The, the guy who wears the Bible in his top pocket and the bullet the doesn't bullet, go yeah. through, come on, all that. Or the you guy know. that has the... Um, it will never stop impressing As Woody Allen said, the guy that has the bullet in his top pocket and somebody throws a Bible at him <laughs> and, and the, the, he would have been killed if it wasn't no, or, for the bullet. Or the guy who says, there but for the grace of God go I means there by the grace of God goes some other fuck <laughs> <laughs> that's all it means if it means anything it means that yeah but you can, you're not going to cure the species of this it's not possible but then if, if we're replacing that with like, other types of superstition that don't have the sort of is, is, there, is there something about religion in its and I'll be harsh in its sort of in its social control aspects that perhaps is a bit more sort of useful to the organisation of, of mankind than astrology or crystals or UFOs or something is. Yes, I mean, I prefer someone who said that they would lay their life on the proposition that Jesus of Nazareth had died for him. I prefer to be sitting with someone like that than someone who, who was a me-decade personal growth cult artist, of course. Yeah. yeah, I just think they're more morally serious as well as more intellectually. So. Yeah, that must, be, that must be true, I think, and... Um, Though I would never stop saying that someone who thinks that a human sacrifice took place on their behalf was being very narcissistic, actually in a rather revolting way. Nonetheless, there are people who believe it in a manner or form that I can't totally despise as I do a Deepak Chopra fan. Mm -hmm. There are those who say, well, it's good to have a faith that is non-materialistic. There's more than greed in this world is fair enough but I mean that's perfectly you don't need the supernatural to derive that view 
Right, that's a view I hold myself. It's a perfectly humanistic view. But do we need something to replace the supernatural? Well, well a lot of us don't. Yeah. Is all I can be sure about. Many of us absolutely don't have the need for it at all. And thus couldn't, shouldn't be oppressed by those who do. Mm. But it's criticism quite often like trying to say um, humanism. I think it's actually a criticism you yourself put in, a, in an interview you did with New Humanist that humanism does just replace a set of values, a set of supernatural values with a set of values that may as well be supernatural in, in treating them as sacredly. Well, it, it's a, I suppose probably almost everyone does have the need to think of something as an, a belief that to them is uh, worth dying for, yeah, yeah, or indeed worth killing for. I mean, if I, to, I don't think I would re- totally respect, or I hate the word totally. I, I don't think I could utterly, I couldn't really much respect anyone who didn't feel that yeah. about something. I would be very interested to know what it was, of course, but. To say there was nothing worth the relativist persuasion, in other words, hmm. nothing really is worth fighting or dying or arguing about. It's all uh, random. That strikes me as repulsive. I can't tell you why I said that. Yeah. It, I ought probably to think that it's a good, <coughs> it would be a good thing if everyone thought, ah, nothing's really worth killing or dying. Why do I not think that? So I don't know. What for you? But I'm perfectly happy at the thought of uh, there being irreconcilable contradictions. Mm-hmm. What I mean, for I, you? It doesn't done. bother me that there are irreconcilable mm-hmm. contradictions or things that cannot be known because our cra- there are things our cranial endowment can't know. Yeah. Particularly about physics, or what we like to call physics, the implications of physics and the cosmos. It's an absolute certainty now that there are things that we we wouldn't be able to understand. They may be knowable, but not by us. Mm. We don't have enough brain power. We are still evolving, I think. That, by the way, seems to be a fairly consistent finding now, that the brain is still evolving. Which is, by the way, almost a one-line refutation of evolution. Yeah. But what we've made up so far is only a tiny bit of what we might be able to make up. But we're not going to find out. Really what we can't imagine what the event horizon really looks like. Yeah. Or what the Big Bang is. We can't do it. Yeah. I remember with some very bright kid saying, well... Try to explain it, saying, uh, "Well, it would be as if you know, once all of matter was in one, just one, quite small suitcase, and the suitcase just sprang open, and then that sort of stuff." The kids said, "Well, what, what was outside the suitcase?" <laughs> I said, "Well, I don't know." <laughs> <laughs> and neither does Einstein. And yeah. time was in the suitcase. And neither as could well. Einstein. Time or began walking, yeah. in the suitcase. It's impossible. Get your head around that. It's impossible. <laughs> And that's not because I'm stupid, it's because I don't have enough brain cells, yeah. and nor does anyone else. But that doesn't and I'm mean happy, I don't mind. That doesn't I mean that we design the supernaturals outside the suitcase. I don't mind, I don't mind. I remember my friend Robert Conquest was asked, you know, he'd done all the great work on the totalitarian train, so he said, why do you think that Nazism is worse than Stalinism? He said, I just feel that it I is. I just do. Yeah, I just do. I feel it is worse, morally worse. Hmm. Well, also, uh, I, 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 I think it's a perfectly respectable answer. I sort of mentioned the, the idea of, of, of sort of religion as the sort of the social control thing, and there's um, we all know the arguments, and you know, we, we, again, this is, we've been over it enough in Little Atoms, and you know, Nick Cohen, a previous mm-hmm. guest, has, has written a book about it. We all know the arguments about why 
people on the left are basically saying anything that uh, you know Al Qaeda throws at us is basically our fault. But um, there's there's a, there's a sort of school on more obviously on our side of this that also says a similar thing. The likes of um, Melanie Phillips and Mark Stein who will say. You know, these are, this is our fault because Europe's given up Christianity and the 60s, you know, permissive society yeah. given up in the 60s, G- all of G- these G- sort of things. Ginesh G- D'Souza most recently in mm-hmm. the United States was a bestseller on this point. So, I, I, what, what I can always, you know, I can, I can sort of take this other and say, okay, okay, Melanie, whatever, you're right, okay, so perhaps if, um, you know, Western society became more a Christian society... Perhaps that might, I don't know, is this a good thing? I don't know. But I always, I can always come to the conclusion of, you know, where does this leave me? Where does this leave you, Christopher, as, as someone who's, a, you know, how can, how can... Well, I'm not sure to what extent Melanie or, or Mark take that, that view, but it's very, been very explicitly put by a very leading American cultural conservative, Dinesh D'Souza, that the left is responsible for 9-11 because of its habituation to secularism, materialism, abortion, pornography, and the other things that have justifiably inflamed um, the jihadists, mm-hmm. whatever we agree to call them. Uh, before we go on with any of that, I'll tell you one thing that, one corollary that couldn't possibly hold, if we became more Christian or more Jewish, as mm-hmm. Melanie would, would have the case, if you tell me that would make them less Islamic, I think you are <laughs> proposing something very, um, very improbable. Well, Melanie does advocate as yes. becoming more Christian, which yes. I don't really understand. Judeo-Christian. If we took more pride in the Crusades and more pride in the achievements of Judaism, I don't I think the nice. corresponding decline in Islamic fundamentalism could be expected. Let's at least not forget to think logically and use the correct categories. If we want to say that uh, there's a lot of corruption and um, cynicism, affectless nihilism in our culture you get no argument from me I argue it all the time actually I think the existence of this uh, relativist left is one of the products and proofs of it but uh, it's in no wise and in no way the case that the cure for that is apocalyptic terrorism Mm -hmm. it is not even not the cure it would be insulting to say that It's, it's, it's worse than any possible disease the failures of, of multicultural post-religious democracy are not to be cured by fascism. <clears throat> and, and the last time it was tried by fascism, that was exactly the same answer. Mm-hmm. Our society has become degenerate. It has no values. It has no... Yeah. Thus, a militarized death cult seems to be indicated. That seems like a non-sequitur to me, mm-hmm. I have to say. I just have to wonder what the place of I mean, I'm talking to someone who would essentially be indifferent to a question like gay marriage. I mean, I don't care. As long as homosexuals are unmolested, I don't mind whether they get married or not. If you ask me, should, it, should they be able to get married? I, I can think of only two reasons. One is they wouldn't marry heterosexuals anymore, which used to happen, creating a lot of misery, mm-hmm. widening circle of unhappiness among a lot of people. It's very good that that's no yeah. okay. the second, it would really piss off the fundamentals. <laughs> <laughs> that's the only, that's, then you've exhausted my case for. My, my first point, by the way, is very seldom made, as far as I know, is original to me. It would mean fewer 
gay marriages between mm-hmm. closet cases and naive. Well, as you so, said, which historically has caused a lot of misery. Awful amount of pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and second, but it's not original to me, it really would upset the, uh, the faithful. And it has. Yeah. So, Christopher, the, the these guys can send women pilots to bomb the Taliban, mm. you know, and to overthrow Saddam Hussein. They can do all this, and they're, they're having an election where all they're arguing about is whether faggots can get wet. We think we don't understand their world. They have not a clue about ours. <laughs> None. <laughs> we think we've got no right to judge their culture. Maybe we don't. But they certainly don't have any right to judge ours. It's certainly not by force. And if relativism doesn't work in one direction, or cultural privilege doesn't work, it doesn't work in the other either. Flat out, straight out basis of, of equality, I insist on that. I'm, I'm not going to be lectured by them. Okay, if they don't, I will try not to lecture them in, in return. That seems like but a good I absolutely argument. insist on the precondition. Mm-hmm. So, Christopher, you said earlier um, that there have to be certain things worth dying or indeed killing for. So, what for you at this exact moment in time would constitute that? Well, it would be all the things that are roughly speaking associated with the Enlightenment. In other words, free inquiry, unfettered inquiry, scientific inquiry, the freedom to have a, an unmolested sex life. That's a fantastically important thing. It's very new in human history mm-hmm. and very, or, uh, at all times and places, very much challenged. And we take it so much for granted that we don't realize how unusual it is and how important. In other words, the, if you like the abolition, not the abolition, but the realization of the evils of sexual repression, um, internationalism, yeah. uh, all of that. And I suppose if you could sum it up in one word, I mean, yeah, in a way that the, the whole of the enemy face can be summed in the word censorship. So the, uh, the fact that all arguments for it and against it, which are usually the benchmarks ever since the trial of Socrates of the emancipation of the species, essentially would usually be justified because um, without it there would be blasphemy. So in other words, the, the right to blaspheme and the abolition of censorship are almost the same thing. It's, just, it's the shortest way of phrasing the difference yeah. between the Enlightenment view and the theocratic view is that. And it shows that it's a radically oppositional magisterium or magisterium. They aren't compatible. I don't want them to be. I want there to be a fight. And I want the chance to take part in it. Is it a fight that can be won? Yes, but it's well, certainly a fight that can't be lost. Let's put it like that. Yeah. It cannot be lost. And it's anyway, it's a pleasure to take part in it. Uh, it's worth doing for its own sake, win or lose. In a way, one of the reasons why I think it can be won is that the fools on the other side don't realize that what they demand is impossible. And they force, therefore, people to take part in the argument who might have wanted it quite right. It doesn't apply to me, but it does apply to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Woken up now to what's, what the threat is. Mm-hmm. I think that's, um, that's a good point to join to a close. We're virtually out of time. So, Christopher, thank well, you very well, much yeah, again. Well, for well, it's an honor. Thank you.
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.